Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. This podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa, the world's leader in legal search and recruiting. I'm Mark Yacono, your host. I'm a managing director in MLA Transform, our advisory services practice. This is, I'm proud to say, our 27th podcast episode, and we have a very special guest, Francine Tone, who's a lawyer, best-selling author, coach, and strategic advisor, and she has an unforgettable mantra, integrate, flow, and thrive. Francine, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Because you have a phenomenal story. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, my uh, journey to becoming a lawyer wasn't the standard, you know, it wasn't here I lived in a middle-class family and everything was fine and here I go to law school and you know just kind of like along the straight path but um yeah my background actually uh triggered me wanting to become a lawyer when I was in the eighth grade or actually even before that I started out as um half Japanese and I was born in Japan and my father was a Caucasian my mother was Japanese and my, I lived with my grandmother my first five years. And when I was five years old, I'm living on a military base. And my friends, my only friends were playing with me. And they actually started running circles around me going, your mother is dead, your mother is dead, your mother is dead. I ran home crying and burst through the door into the kitchen where my mother was fixing dinner. And she goes, what's wrong? And I said, they say you're dead. Well, that night I found out that my biological mother actually was dead. She died when I was only one years old. My biological father left and never to be seen again. And my grandmother raised me until she found a suitable couple to adopt me. And so this was my new Japanese mother and my new Caucasian father who was in the military had adopted me on my fifth birthday. And that was the start of my next 20 years. And then I was told how it was really special that night before I went to bed. And I went to bed feeling special because they had chosen me. And so that made me very special. A few weeks later, I found out how special I was when my adoptive father entered my room and began touching me in ways that I did not understand. And that was my my life for 20, for, until I was 20. And wow, that's a, that's a pretty hard, difficult story to share. It is. It took me years, years before I could share that story. And um, but that story was really what prompted what happened to me the rest of my life. And when I was eight, I came to the United States and I began watching the Perry Mason show, which everybody remembers because they redid it again later. Well, and most of us, well, let's face it. Most of us remember it. Some, don't, right. yeah. Some have never heard of it. But yes. Um, But as a lawyer, you've heard of the Perry Mason show. So here I was, this little child, eight years old, nobody to trust, nobody to turn to. And every week I watched people being accused of murder, going to Perry Mason, say, you're the only one I can trust. You're the only one I can turn to. So, you know, as an eight-year-old, I began trusting Perry Mason. And eventually I decided I wanted to grow up to be Perry Mason. And it's funny how when people go through adversity very early in life, they find that mentor or somebody, their savior, and they want to become that person because they want to be the person that they're missing in their lives. And that's what happened to me. And I wanted to grow up to be Perry Mason. And that's kind of what I did. Took me a long time to get there, but I did it. And uh, that's what triggered me writing the book that I wrote and becoming the kind of lawyer that I became, which was, I wanted to be the person my clients could trust 
always the person they could turn to. And that became the driving force of, for me as I became a lawyer. Was to have that trust put in you so that people who had a need could depend on you to be there and be their advocate. Right, exactly. And, and I think most lawyers understand that's part of their um, being as a lawyer. I mean, that is what we all do, but it became you know, very integral and in, in, at the foundation of me as a, as a lawyer. And what triggered the book that I wrote, triggered how I've been practicing law. And, um, you know, it's at the core of my being as, a, as an attorney and as a human being at this point. So what kind of law do you practice if, you, if you're still active? I am still active. And right now I'm exclusively an appellate law specialist. I just do appeals in criminal, family, and business law. And, uh, and appeals is criminal defense appeals. And I used to be a litigator years ago, but um, 20 years ago, I quit doing that, became exclusively an appellate lawyer, which gives me the freedom that I enjoy uh, in, in my life today. And you're doing some other things, though, to help other lawyers deal with the stress of the profession. And uh, can you share kind of how you, how, what you're doing and how you got there? Oh, yeah. So what, how, how I got there was, um, I began, I wrote a book, it's called What Every Good Lawyer Wants You to Know, and it's a book written for clients, and it basically lays out the information that I've been giving clients for the last, you know, 30 years as an attorney, and it's kind of litigation oriented, it applies in appeals, but it's preparing the client. It's information most lawyers do give the client, but I used to spend days and hours giving this information, preparing them for litigation, and not charging them for it because it was so integral to my developing that trusting relationship with my clients. So I finally put it in a book and I give this book to my clients. It's required reading for my clients to sign up to work with my firm. And it gets them primed and ready to hear what the lawyer really has to say. And this book then prompted my first continuing legal education course. And so I do provide continuing legal education. They're all based on ethics but it's my version of elevated ethics to provide the best service for your client. But also it turns out it provides the kind of elevated ethics that creates the best business model for an attorney. And I was able to do this because um, I had another trauma in my case, my, my life, which was that my son suffered a severe traumatic brain injury. And they told me he would be a vegetable the rest of his life. This was from a ski accident. And this is a a kid who was about to become a fighter pilot for the Air Force. And they told me he'd be a vegetable for the rest of his life. And I said, no, no, we're not going to do that. And I started studying brain science. And that's what, the, studying that brain science was what gave me the information I needed to connect ethics and stress and what lawyers go through and put it into a package and even how clients respond to cases and situations and put it into a package that made sense, that this is information lawyers need to be able to deal with clients more effectively, deal with themselves more effectively, deal with their firm more effectively. And I was able to put it all together. And so all my courses involve this kind of brain science. Let's, to help um, lawyers. Before we dig into that, let's, uh, let's take a, a slight step back and that your son actually did defy expectations, if I recall. Oh, 
Yes, he did. It took good 10 years, but my son fully recovered. There was a little open loop there. We have to close. Yes, he has a miraculous recovery. He had a full recovery. In fact, right now he works for the Air Force, not as a pilot, but he's in Europe on his second trip to Europe, first as a strategic military planner for the Air Force. And then now he's a some kind of project or program manager for base operations, some other thing he's doing. But yeah, it's a miraculous. Doctors today are still dumbfounded that he had the recovery that he had. So digging in from that catastrophe, doing the hard work of digging in to understand brain science, you've transcended that personal catastrophe and been able to synthesize it with what goes on in our profession and how it manifests in attorney behavior, attorney well-being. Can you sort of take take the listeners through that process of how you've linked and integrated and synthesized all those things? Yeah, what happened was when my son was going through the recovery process from the, the brain injury, what I started seeing was similarities between um, attorneys going through stress and realizing that my son, you know, he's had this brain injury, but he doesn't understand that, that he's not good to go, that he's got issues that he can't um, deal with certain problems the way he used to. But from his point of view, because the very thing he needs to see the problem and fix it is broken, the brain is broken, he can't see that he's deficient. And as I began studying the brain injury, I realized that lawyers, because we're problem solvers, we face stressful situations all the time. And we don't even know it. That be, that's become our normal is stress. and seeing how it impacts our ability to solve problems and make decisions and seeing that connection was lawyers don't even know that their brain is broken in the in that sense that they are suffering from chronic stress every single day because so much comes into our lives and we don't differentiate our brain doesn't differentiate between a saber-toothed tiger chasing you uh, versus uh, road rage or just being late for court that your brain sees all of this as triggers for fight or flight, even they're minor. And so we just accept a lot of this stuff that happens every single day as normal. And we don't realize we're under chronic stress all the time. And our body and our brains aren't designed for that. And so we start to operate with mild deficiencies that show up in a brain injured uh, patient. And it was seeing that connection. That, that's really interesting. So essentially, because of the chronic stress and the demands of the profession, we start to operate at some cognizant deficits that we're not even aware of, which impact our decision making, if I've understood what you're saying. Exactly. That's the ultimate negative consequence, but it impacts our ability to deal with small problems, even as well as big problems, it, uh, relationships with people. Um, impacts our ability to digest food, impacts our ability to make sure that our bodily systems are working correctly so that you end up with uh, mental problems, you end up with physical problems. And um, there's a book, it's called uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it's a great synthesis of this concept, why um, so many of our medical problems today are actually linked to this chronic stress. And lawyers are particularly susceptible to this because we live in a profession that is actually stress-driven. 
well, definitely there's a lot of adrenaline um, that drives a huge amount of the kind of work we do. Um, and, and, and for the listeners, I don't think this is endemic just to big law. I think it's really symptomatic of lawyers all the way along the continuum, because while big law may get the press about the hours, uh, solo practitioners, people at smaller firms that have less support resources, that have less infrastructure, operate under similar types of stress, it just doesn't get written about or talked about as often. That's true. And in fact, most of my courses have been seen by medium to small firm attorneys because I present them either virtually or in, in person at bar associations. And only a sprinkling of big law attorneys are at these presentations. And it's um, common for so many of the people on these presentations to go, wow, I had no idea. But you're right. I do re respond this way. I do react this way. I do feel that stress without realizing that I was under stress because it sneaks up on you. And it's kind of, um, it's kind of interesting how our thoughts aren't always the truth, but we don't know that. <laughs> That's really a good point to make. Our thoughts are not always the truth because, you know, as a result of all this, I've also become an emotional intelligence consultant and certified in that. And all the study, the things that I've studied about that is one of the things is that, um, our thoughts trigger our emotions. It's not the other way around. Our, we have a thought, and often the thought is distorted. It's our perception of reality, which triggers the emotion, and in the extreme case, triggers that extreme emotion, then we blow up or something happens. But it's that oftentimes when we're unaware of our situation, we're unaware of the very thought that is causing us to feel terrible about a situation, and we're not even aware of that the thought was inaccurate reflection of reality right and 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 at least one author that i follow gary john bishop likes to say that there's a whole lot of um sub subtext and coding and processing from our past that we're no longer even aware of that shapes our our thinking and unless we're able to really scrape away and see what those deep you know those deep thoughts are We'll never be able to, you know, separate reality from 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 really an imagined truth. That that is so true. And you know, like today, one of the one of the things that people are talking a lot about is DEI, right? Diversity, equity, and um, inclusion. And part of that is this implicit bias, which is yep. bias we're not even aware of, and it stems from the idea that what fires together wires together in the brain. This can go back to your childhood, go back to when you were really little even, whatever happened, it becomes a, a wiring in your brain and things become automatic, assumptions are made. That's what implicit bias is about. And um, I, that's something that's really for <laughs> the front of my mind because I'm actually getting ready to put on an implicit bias course for Lawline uh, at the end of the month. And it's about that whole, you know, what, what is it about your brain that we need to learn so that we become more aware of the thing that's happening automatically. You don't even know it's happening. And is it misconduct when you don't even know it's happening? Serendipitously, um, about an hour ago, uh, I just got off a uh, firm training on implicit bias. And over the last week, I've taken all of the Harvard um, implicit bias tests, which are fascinating. Um, they're also a test of hand-eye coordination, but they are they are revealing um, 
in some of the beliefs that we have that we don't, we're not even cognizant that we have. And so I guess one of the things that really fascinates me is you don't take a conventional approach to stress reduction in terms of, you know, put all your items in these four quadrants and work at one thing at a time and get a good calendar and planner. You go beyond sort of the cosmetics of organization and time management and uh, work with attorneys under stress on a, on a deeper level. Can you share with the listeners your approach? Yeah, one of the first things that I want to, when I'm working with attorneys, is to really sit down and find out what precisely is going on in their lives. And then from that, I, I identify not everybody's the same. Everybody's life is different. And I don't think there is a one formula that works for everybody because it depends on what are your bigger stressors? What are your smaller stressors? What is it you're not recognizing? Some people don't, some people like thrive going to trial. Some people don't. Well, how you approach those people are going to be different depending on what allows you to thrive. So one of the things that I do is I, I look into that. And I use several tools depending on what's needed. For, for instance, one of the things that I recommend some attorneys do is to underschedule their time. Because they um, this is I, you see this with doctors all the time. And you, if you've ever gotten sat in a doctor's office, right? <laughs> How crazy that is. You, your appointment at 9.30 and here it is 11 o'clock and you're still waiting to see your doctor because they schedule these 20 minute segments because you can't have any time that's allowed for the fact that you're gonna spend 30 minutes with the first patient and 40 with the second. And now they're behind all day and your 9.30 appointment is now gonna not be seen till noon. And what that does to the person who has scheduled that time, the doctor or the lawyer who's got every minute scheduled is that it creates a whole artificial level of stress on top of everything else you're doing. And, yeah, and it really, it's really based on a, a, a non-existent truth, right? That you can fully optimize every minute and that every minute can be accounted for and, and that we can run on a precision schedule all the time. That's correct. And it's, it's a fallacy because the brain science on that and some of the studies that show that we can only have peak performance of our brain where it's optimized three to five hours a day. And that's assuming you're not under massive chronic stress. Right. Right. right, and so how do you justify, you know, scheduling out eight hours, nine hours in a day, and thinking you're going to peak perform at three o'clock this time you did at nine o'clock? It's not going to happen, but you will suffer as a result of it because you feel like you're doing something wrong, and your brain perceives that as a threat, and then adrenaline, cortisol, everything pumps through your system, and then now you know, everything is going down the tube. So that's one of the tools is to under schedule and look at how that works. Um, on an emotional level, I where I work with attorneys where I have a have them go through an exercise over a period of time where they actually we identify together four or five times during the day where they have to stop and identify where the emotional state is. Um, most people don't realize that we go through about 100 emotional states in a day. And depending on where we are and what's happening around us, we could be having these big spikes of emotion that we're not even aware of because it happens only for a moment. But those big spikes in emotion can actually trigger uh, chemical releases in your brain that actually are harmful. So identifying those and just becoming aware of your emotional state is a great way to start figuring out how I'm gonna make changes in my life. I read a couple of years ago, a book by Cal Newport, um, 
called Deep Work, and his thesis matched yours in the science, which is three to five hours a day is what you have the capacity for deep work. Mm -hmm. But if you use that three to four, three to five hours a day right, you're actually more productive than if you're scheduled for eight hours, where where not all of that time is is, is capable of being used for deep work. And I think the other thing is, is that you know it doesn't account for the fact that we are through our range of emotion sending toxic chemicals to our body at different points of the day. That's right. You know, and you can have that where I mean, th think of a typical day a, with a lawyer. You get to the office, and then let's say you're feeling fine. You're working. All of a sudden, your coffee spills and gets all over your paperwork. Boom. There's an emotion right there, you know, whether it's enraged or just disappointment, whatever it is, there's some negative emotion that just got triggered, pumping now cortisol in your system. What are you doing to stop the cortisol? Here, here's what's really interesting about that is when we experience stress, it's not just adrenaline, it's cortisol, which is like the biggest culprit. And I'm simplifying a lot of right. this, obviously, but the cortisol gets pumped into your system and it's designed to help you deal with the stress momentarily, like quickly. But we need to do something to stop what I call the cortisol drip. If we don't terminate, really stop that stressful situation and put an end to it, you may reduce the cortisol drip, but it's still dripping, like drip, drip, drip all day long. And the problem with that is as long as the cortisol faucet is even on or leaking, you can't turn on the faucet that sends good positive chemicals through your brain and your system that counteracts the effects of cortisol and adds positive chemicals in your system. So not only are you not turning off the faucet, you're not turning on the good faucet. And I think we know, just like with money, compound interest is great. With cortisol, compound cortisol is not. Um, <laughs> And I think I once read an article years ago that said when we can't control that, it's like we're taking little tiny snips of our heart and our, our vascular system every time that cortisol keeps flushing through and flushing through till eventually there is some type of degradation, whether it's emotional or physical, because that drip just keeps, I mean, a small leak can bring down a foundation if it's a small leak over a long period of time, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you think about buildings, right, where you have a little tiny water drip someplace, and then pretty soon all the cement foundation is destroyed over one little leak. And that's exactly what's happening to us as human beings. So we, we know that constant stress can, can become debilitating over time, even if it's low-grade stress. And I know you work with your clients to kind of recognize where they are, what their stressors are, and to monitor their emotions so they're aware of the um, different points in the day or the different situations that trigger a cortisol release. What's your approach for helping them um, move forward and move beyond sort of that, that, that stress? I'm going to call it a stress cycle because I think yeah, it, it is, is a stress cycle. Absolutely. You know, one is becoming aware. So then you can put a stop to it. But um, Depending on the client, we, we use a lot of these tools, and then I just have them start applying using different kinds of tools. And, and you know, I had a client one time that I, I'm working with her, and she was stressed out over little things, and she felt like her life just wasn't where it should be. She was unhappy. She wasn't unhappy with her husband, but marriage wasn't giving her the satisfaction. Work, she was stressed out. 
And sometimes it's a perception issue. Like with her, I'm sitting down looking at everything and going, wow, actually she has a pretty good life, but stress gets you to start seeing things um, incorrectly. Like that thought distortion we talked about where your reality of how you perceive your life is not correct. And it's getting to see that. And with her, we just implemented a few tools. Like one was under scheduling. The other one was um, use, using what I call my boulders situation, where we start looking at everything on your task list. Because you know what lawyer doesn't have a list of tasks they have to do? And most lawyers have too many things on their list that they shouldn't be doing. And it's eliminating the things to do the important, urgent things, scheduling the important and non-urgent things, and getting rid of everything else. I'm an advocate for getting rid of things and not adding things to do. So I, there's a couple of questions I want to ask. Um, when you were describing that particular client and you described her as marriage wasn't unhappy, but it wasn't giving her what she needed. It, it kind of brings home the point that we set goals or endpoints in a journey, right? We want to get to be, I'd like to get back to being a hundred and under 200 pounds. Some people would like to get married and have three children. But often when we achieve that goal, we find that it really is like, um, like, a, like, a cap, like chewing gum. It tastes really good in the beginning and then all of a sudden the flavor is gone because the goal became so important that, that when we achieved it, there was sort of an anticlimax. Yeah, that's a good point. I love the chewing gum analogy because that is so true. And but I just and, thought know, of it. That's great. I love it. And you know, I'm one of those people that has spent my life goal oriented. You know, I had a goal to become a lawyer. I had, I had a goal to become a fully certified ski instructor, and I did it. I have a had a goal to be able to surf ten foot waves. I'm doing that, and I have these goals. But one of the things I learned a long time ago is that the goal is never as good as you think it's going to be that you have to buy into the journey. So how do, you make into that, how do you make that segue to enjoying the journey as opposed well, to fixating on the goal? Because I think that, that that's something we just don't think about is taking time to savor the journey. Exactly, and, and one of the things that I have discovered is, is asking this question, what really makes you happy? What really, like, Maybe happy is not always the right word. What really turns you on? What really makes you get up in the morning? And the Japanese have this thing called ikigai. It's, it's the reason you get up in the morning. What is that? And um, sometimes I sit down and ask myself, well, what is it in my life that I really love that I know is because I have it, it's really enhanced my life. And I go through and make that list. And what I've discovered is a lot of the things that I thought were important to me are don't make that list. And then I realized, wait, that didn't make the list. Maybe I think sometimes it's more important than it is. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people is they start thinking things are important when they're not. And like I said, to me, it's about elimination, not addition. And I learned this from my son's recovery, you know, a little thing that he had when he was recovering from his brain injury. And it's what we call now the watch that does you no good. The watch, like the watch on your wrist. That right, the watch on your wrist. Yeah, and, it, and it's a it's a cute little story from my my son. He was still pretty severely brain injured. He's in the hospital, and I come to see him one day, and he's fussing with this band on his wrist. And I say, "What's the matter?" He goes, "They gave me this watch that does me no good." Well, it wasn't a watch; it was a monitor. 
It looked like a watch to him because he's brain injured. It has a band. It's got a block on it, but there's no numbers on it. So he can't tell time with it. And so it must be a watch. What else would it be? But a watch that does him no good. It would have sent off monitors if he left the ward. That's what that was. It was a monitor. And um, then I realized we all have watches that do us no good. We put them on our plate all the time. And once they're on the plate, we don't recognize it as a watch that does you no good. And so it becomes important because it's on your plate, but it really, it doesn't do you any good. And it can be uh, the way you react to situations as well as things on your plate, the things that you're actually concerned about. And when you start getting rid of watches that do you no good, I mean, it could be as small as how you react to somebody taking food off your plate to maybe your spouse or your partnership, maybe those things need to be getting, you need to get rid of those. But um, here's a, a great illustration of the watch that does you no good. So my husband makes some of the best sandwiches in the world and everything is like every bite is the same perfect bite of the sandwich. So one day he had made the sandwich and left it on the counter, which was a mistake. He should know that if I'm around because I always take a bite out of his sandwich. So I took a bite out of his sandwich and I walked away. And as I'm chewing and walking away, my husband goes, hey, you took a bite out of my sandwich. And I turned to him and I said, yeah, that's a watch that does you no good because he's not getting the bite back. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's a silly thing to get mad over. And there's food in the refrigerator if you want more. So why are you getting upset over the watch that does you no good. And so that's a great illustration of the watch that does you no good, but there's it's there's so many things. And it's looking at your stuff that you have on your plate and asking this question, one, is it really enhancing my life? Is it making me happy? And two, is it necessary? Because some things are necessary even though they don't enhance or make you happy and just have to take care of it. But if they if it's not necessary and it's not like enhancing your life. Why are you spending your life energy on it? And that's really what it comes down to. So, so how do you help someone assess what watch is helping and what watch is doing no good? Well, I just simply ask the question and we, if we have to, we sit down and make a list. Like what are all the things? And we can start with your task, list of tasks, all the things that are in your life. And then things that come up, like, you know, I, my gym membership, okay, you have a gym membership. Yeah. Are you going to the gym? No, get rid of it. Why are you have it? You know, I, I want to lose 20 pounds. Is that really what's important to you? Or I, like lady that I, I taught, just mentioned, uh, one of the things that was, she was so kind of consumed with losing weight and she had joined a gym and she was going to it every week and I mean, every, every other day, she was doing the regimen, but she was so disappointed in her results. And I said, what's your real, what is it you really want? Do you want to lose weight or do you want to be fit and healthy? And she goes, well, I, you know, she's older. She want to be fit and healthy. I said, what, what, how do you weigh? Does it matter? Does it matter to your husband? No. Does it matter to your kids? No. So it's just because you're still stuck in the vision of, like you mentioned, there's the vision of how I was when I was in high school or in college and it's unrealistic, but being fit and healthy is important. Yeah, so you know, she shifted. the interesting thing is, is I read something recently by a trainer who said, do you want to work out so that you can have muscles here and muscles there? Or do you want to feel good in your body and feel comfortable with movement? And I thought that was a great reminder that 
it's not about necessarily the cosmetic results, but it's about feeling comfortable in your own skin and, and, right. and, and, and feeling light in your own bones as opposed to what a scale says or what a pant size says. And exactly. Okay. And I think that applies so, so deeply to so many things we do, right? Not just about yes. fitness, but about, you know, our obsession with the kind of clothes we want to wear or the image we want to present or, you know, the need to, you know, feel like we're, we're as busy as the next person, even though in reality, you know, we may be more productive if we take, if, if, if we, if we drop that, drop that goal or that perception. And I think, you know, what we're hitting on is we have to help the brain decode what isn't really contributing to positive energy and, and, and optimal brain function. Yeah, exactly. And I, you just hit it. Optimal brain function is, you know, from, from my point of view as a lawyer and lawyers should want to really put their time and energy on optimal brain function because when you don't, Cortisol drip does something to your brain. It actually shrinks your brain. It actually destroys your brain. It's like taking drugs. And from, from my point of view, I think every lawyer should be concerned about this because that's your most valuable asset. How much money, time, and energy have you spent developing this highly critical thinking brain? Lawyers have some of the best critical thinking brains out there because it's been trained to be that way. So you've spent all this time and money developing the brain to do this and then when you just allow stress and allow these watches that do you no good to come into your life and start causing that allowing that cortisol drip to start destroying it you're allowing by ignoring your situation allowing that most important asset to be slowly stripped away slowly destroyed and that should be a concern to every lawyer so i've been talking to a lot of folks recently and and it's no secret that mental health issues and substance abuse are, are rampant in the legal industry. And it's no question from the recent American Law Media survey that lawyers took even a further step back on the mental health spectrum in 2020. But the interesting thing we're hearing now is that as people get vaccinated and are able to do more and be out more and there's contemplated return to office, their cortisol levels are actually dripping faster now. The stress is actually amplified. Um, and, and can you comment on, on what advice do you have for lawyers who are going to have to return to the office for the first, first time in 15 months and begin to cope with not only whenever they've been coping with and whatever they need to decode, but remember how to commute, remember how to use public transportation, remember how to interact with a group of people, um, all, all, you know, not knowing who's vaccinated and who's not. Um, what's, your, what's, your, what's your sort of generic advice for people who are just anxious about the, what I will call a return to normal, but I think it's sort of an abnormal normal. It is an abnormal normal. And, and I will tell you one of the things that I do, because I'm I go to Hawaii a lot. And right now going to Hawaii, you have to still have a negative COVID test, even though I'm fully vaccinated. And until I can go to Hawaii without a negative COVID test, despite the fact that here in California, everybody's open and, most, and anybody who's been vaccinated that do not need to wear a mask, I still wear a mask when I go out. 
I limit going out. I limit my exposure to people. And when I'm in any public place, I'm still wearing an KN95 mask. And that could cause stress, except I, and this is part of the advice I'm going to give, I want to give to attorneys is this, is that's just something I accept to do, whatever that is. And I'm not in a hurry to go to normal. I'm not in a hurry to worry about whether what's normal or not normal. I'm just going to do what I feel comfortable doing that I need to do for myself. And stop comparing yourself to this other person on your left or the person on your right who may or may not be adjusting better or worse than you. It doesn't matter. Do what you need to do and stop and be aware. Don't react quickly to anything. And this is part of that, you know, emotional intelligence, but also the whole thing about everything else we do is stop and think before you act. And take, take, um, be aware of your emotional state and stop and think every time. And if you have to do this over and over and over, which you will all day long for a while, do it until that becomes a little bit more of a habit. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because, um, you know, the debate has become, at least it's flushing out in the trade press as, um, a battle between people wanting to continue to work remotely and firm leaders feeling that everybody needs to be in the office the majority of the time. And I think there's an element of people finding that they can work very effectively remotely, but I also think there's a gigantic element of fear, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and I'm not sure firm leaders are as cognizant of the fear. So what advice would you give them in terms of applying emotional intelligence to you know, understand that, that it's not just millennial pushback about reticence to go to the office. Because I think that's too often what happens. Yes, and I think that firm leaders need to know this. It is that the primitive part of the brain, which is the limbic system, the amygdala and all that, they react to situations that causing stress. Anytime the brain perceives danger, this is what triggers that fear, perceives danger. The danger could be very real like you're right. being chased by a lion, right? Or yeah. it could be imaginary, or it could be totally fictional, completely fictional. It doesn't matter. The brain, the part of the brain that we don't really have a lot of control over, which is that automatic thing that the brain does back in the old, you know, from back when we were monkeys and whatever. Running, um, running from dinosaurs. Running from, <laughs> running from dinosaurs. I always like to use a saber-toothed tiger because I think they were around when we were around. <laughs> but right. It's automatic. So when somebody has a fear and as a leader, if you go, that fear is unreasonable. It's unreasonable to you, but not to their brain. And it's recognizing that everybody's brain works the same, but what the brain, individual brains perceiving is to be a danger can be different. So what I think is reasonable may not be what you think is reasonable, but it's acknowledging that and then having a conversation and talking through the fear as opposed to automatically reacting and saying that's ridiculous that's unreasonable and then dismissing it that's the worst thing you could do right and i think that is really um kind of the message that that um that we need to really stress and reinforce is that um sometimes a rote approach uh 
hurts more people than it helps. There is a fine line between having uniform attendance guidelines and understanding that some people may not, you know, psychologically or emotionally be ready to come back for office, you know, to the office. You know, for example, I had COVID and was in the hospital for seven days on oxygen. Um, now, I don't think I, I, I don't personally have a problem going back to an office and I, I work in a co-working space where there are lots of people, but I know people who have had COVID who are very, very hesitant. Um, even vaccinated, they still have that, you know, they still have that lingering impact of trauma. Similarly, people who've lost relatives in, in the pandemic, you know, have that lingering attitude of trauma. And, you know, my hope would be that we can get firm leaders and people within the profession not to not to make harsh judgments and, and, and apply, you know, rote standards that don't contemplate the individual. Yes, and I think it's important for everybody, the leaders as well as the, the person who's experienced this, we're all to recognize that there's a lot that our brain does that we don't have control over. It happens. Right. Now, once you become aware, you're able to talk it out, you can do some, take some about it, but you can't ignore it. You can't pretend like it's not real to them because it is. And it's really recognizing that our brain does so much that we don't have control over. And it's not somebody just pushing back or being ridiculous or being uh, disruptive. That's not necessarily what's going on. In fact, for the most part, that's not at all what's going on. Yes, and, and it, I, I think it comes back to sort of your earlier observation about implicit bias, right? Sometimes our, but our implicit bias discounts people's implicit fear. Exactly. It, that's exactly a good way of putting it. Right. And if you stop and think about it and you ask, you know, to ask this question, what is it about this person that I feel I'm not buying into that alone? Just asking that question is enough for you to say, well, maybe there is something in my brain that's preventing me from accepting what this other person is saying. And you don't even have to accept it as true. You don't even have to believe it. You don't even have to ever get to the point where you think it's a reasonable fear. But if you could just simply get to the point and say, wow, maybe we should have a conversation. That could be a starting point for a lot of great things to happen. Yeah, and I think that's a great point is that, you know, one of the, one of the best pieces of advice I think you can give folks, having seen as much as you've seen and understanding the brain as well as you do is, taking time to ask questions of yourself and of others mm -hmm. can be enormously valuable. Yeah, and don't forget when you ask questions to really listen, be present and listen to what they have to say without having some, this is implicit bias, prejudging what they're about to say, which will color what you hear and without judging what they have to say, which will again, color what you hear, but just, being open and saying, just hear what they say, and then ask more questions and ask more questions. And um, listening is a big part of, I think, developing that kind of relationship with a mentor, mentee, a leader, the subordinate is don't just go through the motions of listening. You know, you, you've seen all of the, you know, look at somebody in the eye, nod your head and go, uh-huh, repeat what they say. But the question I always ask people when they're doing that, are you really listening? Are you really yeah. listening? And I think, and I think that's true. Is that um, 
people are often, you know, listening in a distracted way. But it gets me to another question um, that I want to ask you as, as we get close to the end of our time together, which is, what is your advice for people to get comfortable sitting in stillness as they under schedule, as they get rid of the watches that don't work? And all of a sudden, there is this space. And I think that many people, including me sometimes, have been preconditioned to think that if you're sitting in that space, you're not performing like you're supposed to. And we all know yeah. that, that space is actually where a lot of the incubation on creativity, you know, begins to gestate. Absolutely. And as an attorney, you want to relish that space because my one of my favorite things, well, I'm an appellate attorney, but this happens even in trial work, is looking, one of my favorite things, looking out the window and just thinking. And when you are scheduled every minute, you deny yourself of that. And that is probably the most important thing a lawyer can do is to look out the window and think. And if you can't get to that point, um, then fill it with something that will occupy your brain with something that's not stress related, like reading some fiction. If you need to pick up a fiction book and read that for six minutes, seven minutes, fill the space with something like that. Don't fill it with more things that will create more stress. Well, and isn't it interesting that it's kind of the analogy of I can't find my wallet and I'm frantically looking around for my wallet. Then all of a sudden I calm down and I notice well, my wallet's right there on the kitchen table under a dish towel. It's kind yeah. of the same thing when you let yourself think like that. Um, um, all of a sudden your brain, your brain goes, goes ahead and it relaxes. And so those blocks and those barriers and those, um, those um, that paralysis from basically frenetic kvetching, for lack of a better term at the moment, um, yeah. that, that locked up your engine block, um, you know, the, everything begins to flow. So I think that's a great point is it's in those moments of sort of conscious disengagement from, from things where you either take in the sights or you distract your brain. It's often when you solve problems. Yeah, it is. And, you know, and that's why I say, like, I'm, you know, one of the things that I do a lot is I ski and I surf. And it's surprising how often when I am trying to catch a wave, all of a sudden an idea pops into my head and I have to repeat it so that I remember to write it down when I get off the water or off the hill. It, problems in my cases I solve while I'm skiing and surfing. Yes. And I, I think that's the great advice is that problem solving doesn't have to be in your office at your desk you know, hungry or with food, you know, a empty food container by you. It can, it can come when you're walking. Um, yeah. So Francine, as we, as we wind down, can you give some closing advice to our overstressed lawyers out there? What's your closing yes. statement, even though you're My not closing a child? statement is you've got to make time for your brain. You've got to, and if you're over schedule, you're making no time for your brain and your brain is the most important thing for your practice, for your well-being, your health, your physicality, your relationships, everything. You've got to take care of yourself and lawyers are no exception to that rule. Francine, this has been terrific. Francine is very prolific. She does CLEs for Lawline and other organizations. Can you tell the audience how to find you? And how to find uh, your sure. 
Yeah, you can actually go to make it easy, francinetone.com. Perfect. That's it. Perfect. And from there, you can go to my law firm, my books, everything. You can get everything from francinetone.com. Excellent. Francine, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been a pleasure to interview you a second time, and um, I'm eternally grateful for your graciousness. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com. <laughs>